0: welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode number 37, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Kieran Setia, a professor of philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, also known as MIT, and author of this month's book, which I was very pleased to have gotten a copy of. It's called Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way, and he's also the author of a previous book, uh, Midlife, a Philosophical Guide. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Totally, um, I'm curious. So, I was an was an undergrad philosophy major before I departed for um, less fun fun things to work on. But what um, what is your concentration? What kind of classes do you teach, and and what have you done your research on?
1: So, professionally, I'm a moral philosopher, so I work on ethics. Although I and I say this in the book, I think moral philosophy has a kind of misleading connotation because it suggests that what you're really focused on is moral obligation and what we owe to other people. And that's certainly part of what moral philosophers think about. But really, moral philosophy is more expansive. So really, what I work on is the question, how should we live? And that's a big question. And it has lots of dimensions. So it connects with, you know, ethics There connects with questions about the nature of action, like what is it to act for a reason? You know, how do we make decisions? And it also connects with questions in what philosophers call Epistemology, theory of knowledge. So, how do we know what we should do? And I'm really interested in anything connected to the question, how we should live.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think a lot of people's experience in, I guess they call it analytic or analytical philosophy these days, are questions that are really far removed from those. Like, I know if you're taking like a philosophy of science course or uh, maybe a metaphysics course, it's less less about daily life and more about these pretty niche questions.
1: This is true. Although I think there's a lot of work in moral philosophy that people might have heard of by people like Peter Singer, who are interested in animal rights, or, you know, recently, effective altruism has been a big thing in sort of, at least a bigger thing in public perception. So there are parts of moral philosophy that are more applied. I guess what I have found in my work in this area and in the more recent work I've been doing for a general audience is that even when philosophers write about practical questions about how to live, there's often a gap between the questions that are most salient to philosophers about our obligations to one another or about justice, which are important questions. And the kind of conversations I was having with friends about how to live. So you know, I wrote a book about the midlife crisis. That was one kind of conversation I was having but also questions about illness or grief or the difficulties of friendship or failure. And I thought, you know, that actually a lot of what analytic philosophers do and the kind of methods they have could be brought to bear on those more, you know, mundane day-to-day topics. And so I'm kind of trying to draw those connections in, in these recent books. Totally. And um, yeah, I'm just curious because so
0: so many books in this category don't rely on philosophical research i wonder if you feel like you've hit the nail on the head here if if philosophy does have a lot to say about um, sort of our our modern suffering
1: i do think philosophy is can be very helpful and there's a kind of distinctive array of methods and approaches and ideas and concepts and and questions that philosophers ask about how to live and what is a good life on the other hand i would say i suppose two things about the limits of philosophy so one is you know part of the reason why both of these books are quite personal and memoirish is that i think at some level thinking about how to live is quite personal like the some part of the work of thinking about how to live involves really focusing on your life and what's actually going on with it and trying to really describe it accurately and i can't do that for you but i can do it for myself and hope that vicariously it's of value so so one limit is i i can't sort of philosophize with every reader but the other limit, I suppose, or the other thing to say is, I, I don't think philosophy is sort of the sole or special path here. I think there's lots of other kinds of approaches. You know, I, I go to a therapist, people do mindfulness meditation, and I, I have, I try to do it, I've done it on and off. And so I think there's lots of other kinds of practices that can really make a difference to people living well and, and sort of making sense of their lives. But I think philosophy has really something to offer and really something distinctive.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think you're right, because there's definitely stuff in the book, um, and we'll get to that, that I found to be, you know, personally compelling for how I might um, go about facing certain situations in my life. Um, the way the book is organized is, is pretty interesting. It's like each chapter devoted to like a specific concept, um, some of which include infirmity, loneliness, injustice. Um, and then curiously, at the end, the, the last one was hope. Um, which I'm I'm curious about how that made its way in there. But um yeah, one of the first ones um sparked a lot of uh thoughts for me. There's this uh you quote someone who's created the term ill being, um, I guess instead of well being, and you write, a premise of this book is that this whole approach is wrong. We should not turn away from hardship, and the best is often out of reach, striving for it only brings dismay. Um and I guess you're talking about some ancient philosophers who, in order to think about what the good life was, first looked at what the most idealistic life was, and then sort of tried to uh, draw parallels from that to like our everyday experience. But but there's something wrong with that. Um, can you elaborate a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think w- w- what was interesting to me was was partly that sort of self-help slogans that you hear now that sometimes, you know, like find your bliss or live your best life or, you know, the power of positive thinking, which are, are, are kind of, tell you not to focus on negative things in life. They do have this long philosophical history. So if you go back to Plato and the Republic, he starts when he's talking about justice with what would be a perfectly just city state, not how do you deal with injustice when you see it in the world around you? Or Aristotle, who's Plato's student in, in ancient uh, Athens, starts with the ideal life. And I think, I mean, the basic problem is the one that, that you pointed out that very often we have to we're sort of denying reality if we think that the ideal life is something available to us and often the strategy of saying well let me just sort of pretend that i can get there from here is not actually going to be fruitful i mean there's there's an anecdote i tell in the book i sort of tell it as a as a sort of imagine this happening to you unsurprisingly it you know it happened to me which was i remember very vividly having a conversation with a friend who was going through something difficult actually <laughs> with their kid and I immediately went into the register of saying, it's all going to be fine, and here's what you do to fix it. And I realized that this was sort of cutting them off. It was a way of sort of denying the reality of what they were going through, and that actually it was both sort of necessary to really think about the problem, to just acknowledge that something hard was happening and not try to pretend it away. And also that uh, doing that was a kind of way of connecting with someone, and that often just describing what's actually happening, really getting to grips with it is already takes you quite a lot of the way towards figuring out what to do. You don't, you know, you don't need to wheel in glib advice. So I think there's a, although this idea of not aiming for the ideal because it's out of reach can sound gloomy, I think there's actually a kind of productive and satisfying realism and a a kind of form of connection and compassion with other people. In starting from the ways in which life is hard, which is why the book is sort of is structured the way it is. I, I wanted to write a book about the good life that never loses touch with the fact that a lot of what we're grappling with when we think about the good life is uh, the ways in which we're, we're dealing with adversity. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. So, yeah, I've noticed obviously, you know, being a you know a member of this um sort of human race especially in in our culture the and in my family and in friends there is a pattern i guess the buddhists would say a deeply conditioned one among some people to offer advice and offer solutions pretty quickly after hearing from a loved one that things are not going um, as well as they might hope and yeah i think it definitely is wise and fair to say that that's not always the most skillful way um To really like let your friend or loved one be heard. Um, I don't know if I go so as far as to say it's like a disavowal or to negate their suffering in so far as like Job's friends, as you were quoting in the book, like actually thinks he deserves like all the horrible things happening to them. But it definitely doesn't seem like the best way um, to support your friend, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean there are more or less extreme versions. So the the case of Job involves the friend saying, "Well, you must have done something to deserve this," and you know that's that's a little bit worse than just, "Hey, I've got a solution," and and sometimes you do have a solution and you do have advice and there are little practical problems. But I think being able to sit with a problem and being able to just acknowledge it and try to figure out what it is is the the value of that is something that I think we often neglect or, or underestimate.
0: Totally, totally. It's, yeah something else that you said i thought was really interesting like you were saying some of these modern um, quips like live your best life um, do have these ancient roots and and perfectionism um, as maybe a something really close to this idealistic way of thinking about life is a big problem a big and a common problem especially as like the number of choices for any given situation rise um, you know i think there's a lot of I don't know where I was listening to this, but a lot of sort of college students and younger people are facing a lot of anxiety over choices given just what's available at their fingertips. Um, and the idea of finding something perfect, whether it's uh, like a career or a partner um, or any number of other things is definitely uh, firmly rooted in at least some aspects of our society. So I think what you have to say about that is is pretty relevant.
1: Yeah. No, I I think of it sometimes as sort of existential FOMO. It's like there's a sense of, I'm not just, not just that there's a better party, but there's some some whole other life I could have had that would have been better than the one I'm actually having. And I mean, one thing I think is useful in in trying to push back against that when you're feeling bad about that kind of missing out that like you, there's so many things you're not going to get to do in life and couldn't it have been better. I mean, it's useful to think about, you know, what it would take to actually avoid that problem. I mean, to, to really avoid the problem that there are good things in the world you're missing out on, you'd have to have a world that was so impoverished there was really only one thing worth doing, or, that, or you'd have to be so limited that you could only appreciate one thing. And you really wouldn't want that. So in a way, I think you know, th- this sense that there's so much in the world to do, and there are so many good things, and I can't have all of them, it's painful in a way, but it reflects something really wonderful that that the world is just rich in good things to do. So in a way, you know, that that's a good problem to have.
0: I see. So you're saying, okay, so I mean, I guess there's a number of different ways. One way would be to like, reinvent yourself like countless times and live like a, a number of lives. But in, in a more realistic sense, you're saying like, if there really was very little to do, um, yeah. Right. So we'd all be worse off, I guess, in that situation.
1: Right. And, and even if you lived an infinite life, you say, well, what if I could just live, you know, d- do all these different things? There would still be lots of other lives different from that that you still wouldn't wouldn't have. So you know, the way people 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 often sort of m- miss this and that seems sort of naive is just you think, why why couldn't I have been that other thing? And then you forget that if you were that other thing. You wouldn't have been whatever it is you are instead, and you'd still have the the problem of missing out, just directed at something else. So, I think in in a way, this is a kind of case where the the inevitability of the problem is part of the the solution.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I have a question for you as a philosopher. So, let's say you have, uh, and, and you already sort of addressed this. But I wonder, like, how satisfying the intellectual explanations are. Like, like if you, you yourself or someone you know are very upset, and you tell them, like, let's say someone comes to you with like the FOMO problem, and they say, like, "Oh God, I wish you know I was in this job, I'd be making more money, I'd be like living by the coast and doing all these fun things." Does the does the thought experiment like strike a chord with them and, and allow them to like release? some of those sort of negative emotions? Or, or maybe I should just ask you for you personally, like if you're having a hard time, do these like very logical arguments, do they help you feel better about
1: things? I mean, the, the honest answer is I think it really varies in ways that I, I find hard to predict. So there are definitely cases where thinking through something philosophically really worked for me as a kind of cognitive therapy. It's sort of, in, instead of, you know, the cognitive therapist working on you know, debunking your belief that your your mother never loved you or something, uh something personal to you. There's there's the kind of cognitive therapy of realizing you had some kind of confused vision of what life is or some you were making some kind of philosophical mistake. And there are cases where I find that really helpful. On the other hand, I think there are there are also cases in my own experience where I have found that, you know, I thought through a problem and I feel like, yeah, no, this is I, I think I've I think I'm right about what's going on with me, but emotionally incorporating that is a, is a further project. But on the other hand, I think that's also true of a lot of, of, you know, cognitive therapy when you do it, you know, when it's not philosophically um, uh, mediated, like sometimes you, you reach the point in therapy where, yeah, you've sort of recognized a mistake that underlies some emotional syndrome, but the syndrome has a, an inertia of its own. and then mm-hmm. I think you know forms of of practice like meditation or other kinds of thera- sort of talk therapy or um, uh, other kinds of, of sort of um, practice can really make a difference so I, I don't think philosophy can do everything, but I, I mean part of it is I think if you're trying to 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 sort of live well in the world there's a there's a sort of way in which you know, one thing you might aim for is just happiness, sort of feeling happy. But you could feel happy while completely wrong about what's going on around you, like not really being in touch with reality. And I think what we want and should want in life is not just to feel a certain way, but to be really in touch with reality, to sort of feel that way and respond to the world uh, the way we should, because we're really getting it. And, And so I think there's a sense in which even if really getting it in the way that philosophy can help you to do isn't the end of the story it is a kind of necessary part of really you know responding to the world uh, as it is not not sort of living in the world as you wish it would be and and so that that's that's part of what philosophy does and there i think you know going back to your question about you know what academic and analytic philosophy these sort of more professionalized forms of philosophy i think one contrast uh between them and some of what i'm doing is that I think the lines between abstract argument and just trying to describe what's going on in a situation are much blurrier for me. So a lot of what I do in the book in in relation to problems like infirmity or loneliness is just try to say, well... You know, why is it really bad to be in a condition of chronic pain, or what what are you missing when you don't have friends, or you feel like you don't have friends? Like, what what's actually going on there? And it's it's a kind of philosophical project, but it's more philosophical description than than abstract argument.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that sense of like empiricism or investigation is like really it's really powerful, Um, and sometimes it's enough to, you know, satisfy you know whatever you know, part of you is having a hard time. Um, and I would sort of just add to that list of things that you could do besides um, like therapy or philosophical uh, investigation is just like get a hug. You know, sometimes that's, yeah, <laughs> that's, yes. Nice. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. It's just, uh, yeah. I mean, this obviously connects with the issue of loneliness, like part, part of what you know, you get out of relationships with other people is just a certain kind of affirmation that you matter that com- can play a role in sort of enabling you to come to terms with some of the ways in which life is, is imperfect.
0: Yeah. And I, I love the chapter on friendship. There's a few nuggets that I really, really liked about. Um, let me see if I can find them. Um, there's, there's this idea that being without friends is like not only like a cost to you, but it's almost like a cost to the universe, because like, no one can see how much you can like shine, or like, no one can see your value. I thought that was such a beautiful sentiment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is a way in which I think we really learn something from thinking about loneliness and and friendship and love, which is, you know, part of what we what happens when you really love someone, and when you're really attached to them is that you just recognize that they matter. And it's the same kind of mattering that, in, in the sense in which everyone matters, except when you love someone or you're you're, you're sort of in a, a relation of loving friendship to them, you realize it and appreciate it in a deeper way than just uh, the sort kind of stance of distant respect for someone who you, you wouldn't mistreat. And there's a sense in which, right, that that's sort of what our, our value as human beings cries out for is a kind of Appreciation the same way the value of anything good cries out for appreciation the same way it's a shame if beautiful music doesn't get listened to and so yeah you, that sort of vanishes when you're you're friendless your your sort of value feels like you're it's not being recognized and so your your sort of existence in in the human world feels feels threatened and yeah and it's it's a loss to you but it is a loss to to the world too
0: mm-hmm. there was some history here about. The, the evolution of friendships that I thought was quite interesting. There was some, well, obviously not like some absolute date, but there was a time in which, um, according to, I guess, some of the historians that you were quoting, friendship, like, I guess, marriage was at some point, this sort of utilitarian relationship, maybe about like survival or social need. And then at some point, we got to start liking our friends. Um, I don't know how well you know that history, but it is pretty intriguing. Can you say anything more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of two two, two big shifts that are are really notable. One is this, there's there's a kind of picture of friendship you get in ancient Greek philosophers on which it's meritocratic, like you have to earn it by being virtuous. And if you're not virtuous, you don't deserve friends. No one should love you. You're unworthy of love. So one great sort of big shift is from that picture of the value of human life to a kind of Enlightenment picture on which, you know, we don't always realize this in practice, but in theory, every human being has a kind of uh, intrinsic value. And then the other shift is is from a kind of period, the, the um, historian Keith Thomas writes about this, that it, in the medieval period, sort of the exigencies of life were sufficiently demanding that almost all social interaction was somehow mediated by just the need for, for if you were relatively poor, the need to, to survive. And so the idea of a friendship detached from material need didn't really have as much purchase. And then ironically, we often think of sort of industrial capitalism arrives, we're all just acquisitive private beings, and this is the beginning of our modern plight of loneliness. But actually, the story is is much more complicated, because the idea of, of sort of um, the detaching of people's private lives from the needs of survival was part of what made room for the idea of friendships and social connections that didn't have to do with material need and were just about fun and pleasure. And that's sort of a transition that happens in the 18th century. And so, I mean, it's a funny thing writing the book. I was, I I started writing it before the pandemic and I was working on the history and social science of loneliness. And I was all set to say, you know, we, people talk about an epidemic of loneliness as if loneliness is really, you know, A kind of terrible problem now, much worse than ever before. And I was all set to say, well, you know, the history is much more complicated. The social science, it turns out, is also more complicated. Maybe we've been overreacting to this. Not that it isn't a big problem, but the, the, the history isn't quite as straightforward as we often think it is. Then the pandemic hits and suddenly, you know, loneliness is this absolutely catastrophic acute social problem. And so you know there's a way in which right now we really are dealing with you know the aftermath of a really intense uh epidemic of loneliness following the pandemic so i think it is a kind of intense social problem now but it, it, i think its relationship to the kind of social history in which people's lives become more private it is very mixed it's not all it's not all bad basically
0: mm-hmm. yeah i hear that for sure i think um you know, one way in taking the investigation even further, and this is probably more from a bit of a mindfulness lens, but I've always found this kind of question interesting, but it's, it's not really to patronize someone, but it's to ask them, like, how do they know they're lonely? Um, and, you know, the answer to those questions could vary, but, you know, you might just say, well, I, I know that I do, like, I know I have hands or something like that. But you might also say, like, oh, well, I've got this feeling of anxiety, maybe in my chest or my neck or my back, or maybe I'm not sleeping as well, or um i'm finding myself more stressed so i don't know if sometimes that can be a, an interesting and perhaps even like healing sort of line of of questioning
1: that's really interesting i really like that question i mean i hadn't i hadn't thought about it in those terms it, it connects with another phenomenon though which is just it's easy to be wrong about whether you have friends whether people love you so one, one of the kinds of conditions of loneliness is that once the anxiety sets in, it's sort of self reinforcing, and you, you become, you know, it's easy to become paranoid and, you know, in your anxiety misinterpret how other people relate to you and read the signals in ways that are negative, and then start to think, oh yeah, here he is I am sure I don't have friends and no one really cares about me in a way that isn't really in contact with with reality. So I do think sort of interrogating one's own loneliness in that way is a really fruitful first step in trying to come to terms with it and, and do something about it. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think and we're, we're on a bit of a departure here, but it's interesting. So maybe we'll go with it for a little bit. I think more so even more than that, when you're talking about like, you know, people who are lonely, they're paranoid, they see someone in a park, they look at them sideways, they think, oh, they must think I'm an awful person. It, it seems almost, you know, and maybe people have studied this, and they know this already to be true. But it seems like minds in solitude on their own, without some, I don't know, healthy amount of journaling or meditating or something are not very, can easily lose grasp with reality. Like if you have a friend with you walking and someone seems to give you like the side eye, you might ask your friend, oh, do you think that person hates me? And they might reasonably say like, well, they might, but you actually don't have any way of knowing it. But I feel like in isolation, we come up with lots of um, thoughts about the world and ourselves that wind up being
1: unreliable. That's really fascinating, too. I I mean, I think that's one kind of of the many ways in which social interaction and friendship are are important. One is is that kind of checking of one's sense of reality. So I I was talking earlier about the role of description in philosophy, trying to describe the circumstance you confront. And sometimes you do that in a solitary way. You just sit down and think, what actually happened today? What did that person mean when they said that to me? Or, you know, uh, you know, did I really hurt that person's feelings or whether it was it okay? Or, but often those conversations go better when you're, you're having them with someone else. And I mean, this is one of the ways in which loneliness is especially hard is that it's, it's kind of a catch 22 because the misinterpretations that you are making when you're socially isolated are, are you, you can't correct them by appealing to your friends because you don't think you have friends or maybe you don't have friends. So you don't, you, you're sort of, you're, you're kind of stuck. Um, in the in the situation of paranoia i mean i mean this it also connects with something that that i think the philosophical idea of love and friendship as the affirmation of the value of a human being helps to illuminate which is that that kind of affirmation of the value of a human being sort of the the intense form of that the sort of uh, appreciative form of that is loving friendship or you know, I, inc- I include under friendship, family relationships, and some romantic relationships, and so on. But there is a certain kind of affirmation of other people's reality that comes just with acknowledging their existence, paying attention to them, listening to them, little moments of social interaction. And in fact, you know, w- one of the happy things about the social science about loneliness is it suggests that uh, even sort of small moments of interaction, even just a little bit of paying attention to someone and having them reciprocate. Really does sort of scratch the itch of loneliness. It really does start to relieve the feelings of intense loneliness that leave you in this catch twenty two where you don't have the the confidence to to reach out to other people. So so I, I think there is a kind of a kind of path out of loneliness that just goes through really attention to and acknowledgement of other people. That's more like moral acknowledgement, more like just sort of saying, yeah, you actually matter.
0: Yeah, totally. I- I've noticed it in my own life because I work from home. If I spend all day alone and I'm feeling kind of shitty, if I go outside and I just make small talk with a neighbor, that can almost be enough to like, to really like buoy me, which, which I would contrast with some of the um, experiences I have that are a lot more transactional that don't seem to do that. So sometimes I'll work out of like a co working space, like a, it's kind of like a expensive Starbucks where like people can leave uh-huh. their laptops and it's, yeah. It's like for the people who don't have offices who want that feeling and the hellos and goodbyes and the sort of how are you's, um, those sorts of transactional conversations, I feel like don't do anything for me. Um, but the ones like sort of with my neighbors or just like people on the street and maybe a, a less relaxed, less sort of frenetic or frantic um, context do seem to be effective.
1: Yeah. And, and ones where it's not utilitarian, like the point is not to, to just efficiently get something done. It's, I mean, if you think about small talk, I mean, you learn something kind of, but the point of it is not the efficient exchange of information, the efficient exchange or exchanging information about little things really subserves this quite profound purpose of just saying, yeah, you exist. I notice you, I care about you and you, you, you matter. And because you matter, little facts about your day and what you did that morning matter. So, so I think that non-utilitarian interaction, even on a small scale is quite, is quite profound. Yeah. I wonder
0: if when the AIs get really smart, they're going to make small talk or they'll just cut
1: right to the chase. Oh man, I'm sure you can already get some kind of, you know, language processing bot to, to fake small talk. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know what to think about these kinds of changes other than that they, they are a little bit terrifying.
0: So, um, in the book, you talk a little bit about stoicism, which I don't know that much about, but I am curious about it. And I, I think at least in some parts of the book, you come down kind of hard on it that, um, I'm quoting here, the stoic attitude may dull our pain, but it does so by distancing us from the things that really matter. So I'm, I'm interested in more about that, but I'm also just interested generally, do you find elements, some elements of stoicism to be useful
1: or is it, is it, is it not that great? So the answer is I kind of do, and in, what I'm reacting to in the book is a kind of is what I feel like is the over uh, overinvestment or the over adoption of kind of Stoic ideas in a way that's a little bit detached from the the both the the actual implications that they seem to have and from the philosophical background. So I mean, one way to kind of bring this into focus is to think about Epictetus, who was um, one of the sort of original Stoic sages. <laughs> And you know, Epictetus really, you know, the the kind of fundamental mantra is just don't worry at all about what's outside of your control. Focus only on what's in your control. And as a practical matter, it it doesn't make sense to devote your time and energy to changing things that are out of your control. They're out of your control. So that seems right. But the the sort of stoic idea is you just shouldn't, you shouldn't be emotionally detached from what's out of your control. And you know, two examples of that in, in uh, Epictetus's work that are really I think kind of shocking are one is that he says you know once you recognize the mortality of everyone you love and that there's nothing you can do about that well you'll just realize that grief is irrational you just won't you won't be heartbroken when they die uh, and I think no I think you're really missing something there are ways to, to to for grief to go wrong but I think you're really missing something if you don't feel it for people you love and the other example that I think is quite sort of to modern, readers quite shocking is that, you know, Epictetus was actually enslaved. And one of the things he argues is that since he can't free himself, he can't control that, he should just accept it. He should not fight against it or struggle against it emotionally at all. And again, I think, no, that's a case where I think the right attitude is one of sort of raging against oppression, even when it's oppression that you can't control, you shouldn't just adapt yourself to it. And I think part of the context for this in the Stoics that, that Uh, is sort of not part of its contemporary manifestations mostly is that the Stoics really thought that the universe was sort of infused with God. They thought, you know, God sort of made up the universe, reason governed the universe, God's reason governed the universe. So they were in a position to think, look, whatever happens that I can't control, God's got it covered. Like Mm -hmm. reason in God's reason is going to make this all okay. And I think if you have that, that whole cosmological picture I can see why it would sort of make sense to say even about quite terrible things like the death of someone you love, even though I can't see it right now, there must be some reason for it. it, it it's it's got to be somehow part of the divine plan. What I think you can't, there's a kind of having your cake and eat it to, eating it too thing where in contemporary Stoicism, people don't really buy this this sort of cosmological picture of the universe as the, the sort of instantiation of God's will. But they still want the the sort of emotional, uh, you know, um, uh, the emotional, the yeah, the the kind of stoic emotional response that you don't really feel the, the the kind of grief or the the horror, and I think that isn't really available. What what might be available is is a certain kind or degree of adjustment to maladaptive emotions that. Comes from really taking in what's out of your control. So it's not that there's no insight in in that Stoic idea, but I think to really get the the kind of radical benefits, you have to buy a whole lot more of the the Stoic philosophy. The most contemporary practitioners really really buy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't know. It's it also just seems I don't want to throw shade on Epictetus. He sounds like a terrific guy, but I mean, if you've ever worried before, you've ever had an anxiety condition, it's not really terribly easy to just say, well, this is irrational, and therefore I'm going to stop it. Or if a a family member dies, you just decide you're not going to grieve. I mean, a lot of these things take place, at least in my experience, outside of my control. So, um, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, so the Stoic idea is really like the the ultimate extreme of of cognitive therapy. And in fact, the the sort of originators of cognitive and cognitive behavioral therapy cite the Stoics as um, antecedents, because the Stoic idea really is your emotions sort of have a picture of the world and if the picture of the world is wrong and you just correct it, then problem solved. And, and I think you're right that that the the nature of emotions is not quite so cognitive uh, as that suggests.
0: Yeah. So um, one of the chapters that I really liked was about pain um, because you yourself deal with chronic pain and you were talking about the, what pain is and how it works and um sometimes how it doesn't have like a future or a past because you get really absorbed by it. And I found, I don't deal with chronic pain, but I do deal with chronic anxiety, which Uh you could maybe think about as a kind of mental pain. Um, And a lot of what you were saying, it seems like if you replace the word pain in there with anxiety, it really mapped onto my experience. So I was wondering how you feel about or how you think about different kinds of pain, like especially maybe mental pain, or if you would even admit that into being the same kind of category or same kind of thing.
1: I I think it really might be. I I was hesitant to generalize just because it's one of those cases where, you know, what I know is my own experience. And I think some, I'm pretty sure some of what I say about chronic pain, I have chronic pelvic pain, but I suspect that if you have chronic back pain, a lot of what I say is going to seem pretty resonant. Like, you know, the the nature of the pain is is similar. And it has this feature that, you know, it's very hard when you're in it to sort of project out of it. It feels like it's just going to be there forever and it's always been there. And it's this that sort of crushing sense that it, it's permanent that makes it especially difficult to cope with. And if you could just say to yourself, as it were, you know, there's, you know, do you know the, the sitcom Kimmy Schmidt where she's been, she's been trapped in a bunker for 15 years and her mantra is you can stand anything for 10 seconds. And, you know, I think 10 seconds might be too short, but there's something to the thought that, you know, if I was just having the kind of pelvic pain I have for a day, I would think, well, just go and have a good day. It's not that big a deal. But the problem is I'm having it in this, I, I can project the future and it's just never going away. And it's, you know, it's always been there. If I could just live one day at a time, as it were, I really, if I could just think, no, it's just another okay day, I could really kind of control this, this, the, the way in which the pain Affects my quality of life, and I wonder. Yeah, it would be interesting to 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 see how far that applies to uh, mental pain. How far the 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 sort of the the impact on your life has to do with the shadow it casts over the future and the past. And if you could just take it sort of moment by moment, it wouldn't be so bad, I suppose. With anxiety. I mean, you can speak to this. I I suppose that that sort of projecting forward into the future is, is like, is part like essential to the problem.
0: Mm, Well, yeah, it is very future oriented. Um, I'm, I'm curious about, um, you know, not curious enough that I want it for myself, but um, yeah, maybe that's not a nice thing to say, but anyways. (laughs) uh, (laughs) So I guess like the, you know, and I'm pretty, pretty informed by like the mindfulness stuff. So a lot of what I say, you know, comes through that lens. But I wonder, with the chronic pain, you know, less more granular than day to day and more by moment to moment. Is it the kind of phenomena that seems to ebb and flow literally from moment to moment? Or like, I'm curious if you if you were like, sitting down to like, try to really get close to it, how is it kind of like a wave that comes in and, and goes out or is it like fairly persistent like across seconds or minutes or, or hours
1: no it it varies but usually not rapidly so my my i mean this is again just just speaking from my own experience my usually what happens is by the time i realize it's not so bad it hasn't been bad for a while i'm like hold on that's interesting i haven't been thinking about it for a bit and then when i pay, when i then pay attention i think oh it's been quite mild for a while i wonder when that happened and then when it's bad i'm like i don't remember when it started being bad it seems like it's always been this bad so it definitely varies but it seems to vary you know not not from moment to moment but over longer periods that i can't really keep track of um and yeah so there's times when it just doesn't seem that bad and then there's times when i mean the worst thing of, about it I, for me as i think for a lot of people with chronic pain, and maybe this applies to anxiety too, in some ways, is sleep. So I think the, the points at which it's really a problem is when it's sufficiently, it's sort of sufficiently bad and sufficiently attention uh, demanding, that it's hard to sleep through it. And that, you know, those are the kind of periods where I really struggle. But yeah, it does, it does vary. I mean, I haven't, I, I have found mindfulness meditation helpful with lots of things. And Especially with my own, not quite anxiety, but but tendency to perseverate about the future and sort of get to to not be able to appreciate what's happening right now. With this in particular, it hasn't been quite so helpful. It's in terms of just the, the mindfulness of just being with it right now in the moment. So it is much for me much more a matter of saying I can have a good day even though you know, there's this, there's this sort of uh, um, glitch, you know, there's a kind of uh, uh, blotch on the day, but nevertheless, I can have a pretty good day. And so let's just, let's deal with that now. And then, you know, tomorrow is tomorrow. And that's, yeah, that's less about sort of meditating in the moment.
0: Yeah. I think another way that you point out that makes is like a really um, interesting analog between the two is that pain seems to um, really identify you with your body. Like, you might've been doing something else like watching TV or talking to a friend, but pain really draws your attention inward, sort of as you were saying, and, and makes you identified with this problem and anxiety similarly um, makes it hard for us to uh, realize, well, it, it depends on how much Kool-Aid you've drank, but for me, that your true, your true self, which is like this, you know, wide open, spacious consciousness, things appearing, things disappearing, Um, And instead of being able to recognize that I contract and become extremely interested in in a sort of unpleasant way in whatever anxious thought is like flitting across my mind at any given time and very absorbed into the problem suggested by my mind and trying to solve whatever it is that is giving me anxiety. So I think they are analogous in that way, too, in the way that they sort of momentarily sort of change the way like we identify ourselves.
1: That's really fascinating, yeah. And I, I think it's that your description of it made me think about attention. Like they both sort of grab and control your attention in a way that prevents you from attending to the world outside and sort of being being open. And I think that is part of what's what's difficult about conditions like like chronic pain is that it's it's not just that the pain as well. Pain is painful or pain is unpleasant. Duh. Like th- that's part of it. But the, the way in which it, it, it by drawing focus and to your body uh, makes it hard to just sort of experience the world transparently and openly that that's the that sort of adds insult to injury. And it sounds like that that resonates with your description of anxiety that, that it's, it's unpleasant in itself. And it's also just impeding a, a kind of open relationship to the world.
0: Totally. Totally. And I guess that's because it's, you know, both of them, anxiety and pain are both wrapped up with survival, I suppose. So that's why it's so good at getting our attention.
1: Yeah, no, so it's, it's, they're both, I I suppose, dysfunctions, like chronic pain, the thought is, in acute pain, where it's not deceptive, there is something going wrong. the, The idea that you're like, pay attention to this right now and deal with it makes perfect sense. But when, you start, when it starts to be chronic or, and even detached from any particular physical duress, this is just dysfunctional. But the, the same uh, sort of psychological routines are in place, sort of drawing focus to it. And uh, yeah, I, I, anxiety, I, I guess, is a similar kind of, of dysfunction of, of a system that is a perfectly functional system to you know, pay attention to stuff that might go wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, right. The acute situation. Oh, I'm afraid there's a monster behind me. That's actually bad. Whereas like, oh, I'm afraid about sending this email to my boss. Maybe he'll be mad at me. Maybe, you know, less, um, less functional or, or sort of less adaptive.
1: Yeah, no, exactly.
0: Um. Yeah, there's you write uh, in the chapter about loneliness, about isolation and about how common it is in like prison systems for people to undergo um isolation as you know part of punishment or i guess just to keep them away from the general population but the the costs of these routines of punishing people by putting them alone it seems like they're so huge and they're so terrible i i, I don't even understand how this is still legal i don't know how deep into the weeds of of that practice you got into but it, it seems crazy for a civilized society
1: I think it is just incredibly psychologically destructive. Actually the most disturbing study. So I don't know that much about the, about the sort of prison system beyond the fact that this remains quite a common practice in it. But but one of the studies I read was about the use of, of basically solitary in schools as a mode of discipline. And that just seemed, you know, (laughs) just horrifying that uh, it's, and just so obviously counterproductive and, and uh, cruel that um, yeah, that, that, should definitely not be happening. So yeah, no, I, 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 and I, I go back to sort of the the inception of solitary in American prisons in the nineteenth century. And there's a quote from Alexander de Tocqueville when he was sort of touring America, saying, "This is terrible. This is not reforming people at all. It's just destroying them." So it's not as if the problems and the the, the sort of the fact that solitary confinement is not a a, a path to sort of self reflection and moral reform. It's not like that's some new discovery. That's something that's been clear to people observing uh, solitary confinement from from its inception. So yeah, no, I think it is time we we uh, did away with it. Mm-hmm. The,
0: uh, the other chapter that I really, really found to resonate was about failure. Because um, I, I have a pretty active inner critic who likes to let me know when I'm falling uh-huh. short. <laughs> And some of the, this sort of intellectual stuff, I think actually he, he was paying attention while I was reading it. It's this idea about stories and about whether like a life can be a failure um, or, or it's, you know, really just a life. Um, and it, you know, it includes successes and failures. There's a few good quotes. I guess there's one which is whatever story you tell about yourself, however simple and straightforward, there is endlessly, endlessly more to your actual life. A life can't really succeed or fail at all. It can only be lived. Um, so, yeah, how do you think about the effect of narrative, I guess, personal narrative or just like the, the stories our minds spin up about ourselves as a way of and the way we either own them or, or decide not to own them um, as a way for thinking about, you know, our trials and tribulations when we fall down or when we succeed?
1: So, so I, I mean I do think yeah there's a real danger to narrative like if, the, if you if what you're doing when you're trying to make sense of your life through narrative as many of us are sort of tempted to do is setting up this sort of linear story in which there's a way it's supposed to climax that's like the the victory then you're doing something quite risky with your own self-conception which is setting yourself up for the for a kind of failure that really defines you and I I think there's a kind of tightrope to walk here because often when people talk about the attractions of narrative, there's a lot of philosophers and psychologists who talk about our, our tendency and our need and the value of narrating our lives to ourselves. So I think there's a kind of pressure to do that. And then there's this risk. And I think one way to, to sort of get out of this is to recognize that you know this kind of linear form is only one form that narrative can take. There's lots of ways to sort of tell the story of your life in a way that helps you make sense of yourself, which can be a, a kind of source of, of, of meaning and value that don't have this linear structure. So there's a wonderful book I talk about by, by a poet and critic called Jane Allison called meander spiral explode, which is about narrative structures that are meandering spiraling or explode or branch or, and, and so I think one way to, to try to, to sort of get out of this danger of telling your life story as if there's one thing you're supposed to be, or one primary thing that is supposed to happen. And if it doesn't, you're a failure. Is to think, well, I can make sense of my life, but in in terms of a story. But the story might be one that's episodic and has many, many, many different chapters. Some of which end happily, some of which end sadly. But and that sort of resonates with this idea that I think is is enabling and helpful, which is is to recognize how much there is in any given life. Not to not to sort of let this sort of big picture distract you from all the little things you're doing. You know, some of which will be failures, but many of which will involve success and connection and things going well. And e- even even when things in other parts of your life are going badly. So, yeah, no, I, I think there's a, that's something we have to push back against. And it, and it connects, you know, there are particular forms of narrative that were culturally induced to go in for that have to do with things like career or professional success, with wealth, with sort of the idea that the measure of how well your life story is going is financial those in particular i think can be really can be really damaging
0: totally totally um, and i think another antidote which you point out in the book is to get a little more invested in the process instead of the end result you talk about these i guess this is going back to aristotle these non telic or non telic activities activities for which the the practice of them are like intrinsically valuable rather than um the destination or or their accomplishment um that comes up for me sometimes i'll i'll be out on a bike ride with a friend and he's it was his job in this one situation it was his job to orient us to where we were supposed to go and uh we got lost and i you know was pleased to be able to report to him that it's fine because you know we're not we're on a non telic or whatever activity. Yeah, like we're you know, we're still you riding the bike anyway. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right. The right. riding the bike is the thing. We're just doing it like you know, on a different street than we might have earlier.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that, that's a great example. So that, I think this the the idea of a, a telic activity or a telic activity is that it it's aimed at a particular endpoint and it's completed and you, you're sort of right now you don't have that endpoint so that's frustrating and then as soon as you've got it it's over so. I guess we got to move on, and you're always sort of finishing these activities. This is sort of how, you, when you structure your life in terms of one project after another, that's the kind of shape it takes, and it does have a kind of self-defeating character, and it has a, a it, it structures what you're doing in terms of standards of failure and success, constantly kind of setting your setting a measure for what would be failure and success, and Right. Lots of whenever we're engaging in projects, whatever we're doing, we're also engaged in act, in the sort of processes that don't have endpoints. So I might be, you know, riding a bike to work, but I'm also just riding a bike. And if I'm riding a bike to work, then I gotta get to work. And but if I'm just going for a bike ride, the actual endpoint is completely secondary. And there's a kind of value in the process. And I think even when you're engaged in things where success in the project really does matter, usually there's also value in addition in the process of what you're doing. And if you can find that value, you can sort of find value in your attempts to engage with the world independent of whether you happen to succeed. And that, that I think is a kind of value we easily lose touch with when we, we we get sort of driven to get things done and that we we can sort of recover and that will will liberate us to some extent from this sort of success failure structure that otherwise uh you know preoccupies us
0: totally and i think finding that value can sometimes be hard i know for me i enjoy bike riding so i can find it even if i'm on the way to do something but i don't so much like enjoy sitting in traffic so i'm sure there's many wonderful things about you know being in a car that i own and being fortunate enough to own it and the air conditioning and the music and there's definitely a lot going on there but sometimes uh, finding that value, you know, can still be kind of difficult.
1: Well, I think that's right. So I think not not all of the things we're doing are ones where the process is equally valuable. Sometimes you, it really isn't just necessary to get this chore done. Like commuting might be the, the paradigm example of this where, you know, that there isn't anything particularly to appreciate in the long, slow drive through traffic. So you can't always make this move. But when you, you know, you can sort of do an audit and think through like, how much of my day is occupied with things where I can't really see value in the process? And where can I find it? And, you know, sometimes you can just shift your orientation and find value in the process without changing the outward circumstances of your life. Sometimes part of what the problem is, is that too much of your life is consumed with things that really only are valuable as things to get over with things to get done. And, you know, you don't always have choices over that, but where you do have a choice, that's something to recognize about a way in which your life is structured. That's going to make it hard to really find meaning because big chunks of your day are just ones you want to be over as soon as possible.
0: Totally. Yeah. And I guess the longer we live, you know, the more apparent this sort of achieving things, um, and failing at things starts to become more of like a treadmill instead of, um, I don't know. I, I remember I was at a meditation retreat once and there was a sort of an older lady there. And she told me that like for most of her life, she kept thinking about when this thing was going to happen, this thing she'd been expecting. So I don't know what it exactly was. I don't think she knew either, but there was this idea that she was like headed towards something. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. So, um, yeah. So like there's these concepts in you know, there are the names of the chapters and there's one on hope. I'm, I'm curious how it got in there or how, how any of these got in here, I guess they're, they're things that you probably grapple with. Um, and I'm also curious about what didn't get in here, which, which um, concepts or chapters were you thinking about including, but you know, didn't make the final cut.
1: That's a good question. So, yeah, I mean the, the, I, I kind of had a structure, which was let's start with, you know, your body and the ways it can go wrong and then, you know, look slightly outwards to loneliness and friendship, and then to grief. Uh, and then you kind of social environment, but more your, your sort of personal endeavors like failure and then injustice, which is your social environment and maybe your political environment where we're not concerned so much with your political, with, with your sort of personal failures and successes, we're more concerned with you know, the state of society. And then the chapter on absurdity is about, well, how, some spiritual questions about how you relate to the whole cosmos. So the, the kind of Selection of chapters was dictated by this sort of structure of starting with your body and then just sort of looking outward and outward and outward and outward until, well, you can't really get any more outward than looking at you know the whole, what what William James calls the whole residual cosmos. And then hope comes in because partly because I wanted to to sort of see to end with by trying to th- sort of bring together what was positive, but also because I am myself ambivalent about hope. I think there's a kind of, there are dangers in hope and the sort of passivity of just hoping things will get better. And I wanted to explore that ambivalence, which, which has a long history. I mean, it's funny, there were things that didn't quite fit that I really wanted to talk about. I think there are a lot of challenges of parenthood, which are very much on my mind. And that when people think about how life is hard, one of the central things they might point to is that if they have kids, parenthood is very hard. And so I did think you know, maybe I need a chapter on parenthood, and then it seemed like, you know, th- that's a whole book. Like a a chapter on parenthood is is not going to begin to scratch the surface. So that's the one that I really think uh, I I was sort of on the verge of, of trying to write something about it, and then and then thought, you know, this is I'm not going to be able to do it justice in in one chapter. Totally, yeah.
0: I'm I too find myself to be somewhat ambivalent about hope. Um, yeah, I had a family member who who was sick and eventually succumbed. Um, to that that illness and I remember feeling singularly I I don't know if hopeless is the right word because it's kind of pejorative but I I wasn't as hopeful as some of my other family members and um I I felt that if I were to be hopeful and I think this relates to what you're talking about the courage to hope I I would be setting myself up for a bigger loss than I wanted to feel um Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, there's, so, also, yeah. there's also a kind of measure of facing reality. Like sometimes I think, you know, the, you think that if you really face up to what's happening, there are things you can't hope for because you just have to acknowledge they're not going to happen. I mean, a shift I find really useful and that I sort of talk through the, the path to this in that chapter of the book is the shift from asking, you know, should I hope? Is hope good? Should I be hopeful? To asking, what should I hope for? because i think there's all it's always there's always something to hope for and we're going to hope for you know hope is going to be there and what's fruitful I, I often is not to ask you know should i be hopeful but you know where can i find hope so it might be that if you know someone you love is going to die it might be that what you should hope for is that you get to see them once more before they die that might be realistic or that they die painlessly that might be realistic or you know and that i think is a more fruitful question to ask ourselves when we're grappling with hope like what, what where can I find hope what should I be direct be directing my hope at and that's always productive even if you know the question of you know should I hope seems like it, it's sort of not really helpful
0: mm-hmm. yeah you describe hoping well as uh to be realistic about probabilities not to succumb to wishful thinking or cowed by fear to hold possibilities open when you should which I think you just described yeah, I, I do appreciate you doing a chapter on hope because it stands out as one of those concepts that just seem like at first glance to just be like completely good, you know, like hope who doesn't right. want that. People
1: praise it. Yeah, right.
0: So, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, so I I, um, I, know we're getting close to the top of the hour. Um, is there anything um, I haven't asked you about in the book that you'd like to, you know, recommend to the listeners or any upcoming projects i mean this this book is just on the heels of it being um published right sometime in october you mentioned
1: right yeah yeah so it comes out october 4th and um yeah so you know the book is about to be out there and there yeah we have not there are chapters on injustice and absurdity and grief and uh my hope is that yeah the book will be will be helpful to people thinking through these things and that you know you could read it from beginning to end starting with your body and ending with the universe or you could you could sort of go straight to the chapters that seem to be about something you're really grappling with yourself and then and then move around to other chapters later so even though there's a, a narrative arc it, it it sort of each episode each, each chapter has its own has its own unity and yeah, no so so I, I think that you know there's no way to cover all of them. and I, I feel like we've we've sort of given given a real a kind of tour of, of some of the the kind of strategies and ideas and arguments in the book.
0: Good, good. And where can people find you online and also the your podcast that I neglected to mention?
1: Oh, sure. yeah, I am uh, Kieran Setia. If you Google me, you can find me, but I'm at uh, www.ksetia.net and I tweet at Kieran Setia. And uh, if you go to either of those, there'll be links to the podcast. I just started a Substack newsletter. I'm posting every week or two. It's just sort of uh, little essays and, and thoughts that that uh, didn't make it into the book or that that are about you know my life or other people's lives. Um, and yeah, I, I've got a page there of other writing I've done about a lot of random things like baseball, stand up comedy, uh, the meaning of life. So if you, if you want to read any of those, they're they're on my website.
0: Awesome. Well, it's been a joy talking to you this hour and also reading the book. So thanks again for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for
1: having me.